Support for Today Explained comes from BetterHelp. What do you do when your social battery is drained? Do you push through and silently resent your friends? I'm laughing because maybe. Or maybe just scream into a pillow all night. I <laughs> don't do that. But if you do, that's fine. Not, not judging you. Therapy can help you build more awareness of what you need and when. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy with licensed professionals. Scheduling is convenient and finding a therapist suited to your style is quick and easy. You can find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. You can visit betterhelp.com slash explain today to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash explained. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It's Today Explained. I'm Halima Shah. This past Christmas marked 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. And today we're seeing unrest in the republics that formed or reemerged in the aftermath. Kazakhstan is seeing some of the biggest protests in the country's history, and dozens of civilians were killed today. And a conflict that's been simmering since Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea is erupting along the Ukrainian-Russian border. Russia has for weeks been massing troops and tanks along the Ukrainian border, prompting Ukraine, Poland and Lithuania to call for more Western sanctions against it in fear of an invasion. The villages along Ukraine's border with Russia have been disrupted by military checkpoints and shifting contact lines for almost a decade now. But escalating conflict in recent weeks has these communities living in constant fear. In short, in recent weeks, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin stands accused by the West of amassing more than 100,000 servicemen next to Russia's border with Ukraine. Sarah Sinkurova is a human rights journalist. She reported from the Ukrainian side of the border for Al Jazeera. And security incidents uh, such as shelling and shooting in the war zone have intensified in the war zone since November 2021. And a Ukrainian soldier was killed in December. We think it is extremely important now to uh, uh, send a clear message to Russia about uh, um, reducing tensions, uh, be uh, transparent and uh, avoid any type of escalation of the situation in and around uh, Ukraine. Tensions further rose after Vladimir Putin set out security demands that NATO rejected immediately. And meanwhile, on the ground, along the contact line, people suffer and lose hope. Many of them hear shelling and shooting on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, and they are simply terrified. Sarah said the region has been hollowed out by eight years of conflict. 
The contact line is the line that divides the government-controlled area from the separatist regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. And it's a 400-kilometer uh, long line that goes through um, villages and settlements. Uh, this region is, um, for the most part, a very rural region. Um, while I was there in December 2021, it was also very, very cold. It was minus 14 outside, which makes it all the more difficult for the local populations to survive there right now and uh, when you drive through the region you will see that there's signs warning against landmines which makes it very very dangerous particularly for children or anyone really that's playing or walking outside or in the woods you know some of the villages and some of the towns have been completely destroyed by the war in, in 2014 and 2015 and you can see um, signs and writings on the gates and on the house Houses where people marked, uh, please do not shoot because people live here. And, and some of the villages have been completely destroyed. So who did you see and speak to when you were there? One of the particular aspects of, of the Ukrainian conflict is that there is a very high percentage of the elderly people and of disabled people who live in the war zone. According to the Kyiv Office of the European Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Operation, there's 3.4 million people in eastern Ukraine who are in need of humanitarian assistance and 1.3 million elderly persons. So oftentimes these very, very vulnerable elderly people live in, you know, abandoned houses in villages or towns that essentially look, look like ghost towns because they had been entirely destroyed by shelling and shooting. I interviewed a woman named Vera. He was 76 year old and lives near the town of Chasivyar in eastern Ukraine um, that is very close to a shooting range where military personnel kind of train and shoot guns and machine guns. And Vera told me that she heard shooting all the time, all day, every day, and she was essentially terrified of it. And she also had some some health problems. She became blind in 2014 uh, after being a, a victim of heavy shelling. And like many other people in this region, she was she was really going through a um, depressive episode and she was talking about suicide. Unfortunately, like many other people whom I interviewed who have been living in this war zone for, for nearly eight years now. Vera, because she was blind, was also telling me that she was in a particularly vulnerable position because people people stole money of her, right? It was very difficult for her to hide her money, to keep her money, to go outside to, to buy food. And she was telling me, she was describing how, you know, the only thing she could think about when she woke up in the morning was where to find a piece of bread. And for me as a journalist, this was, honestly speaking, the first time that I've seen a woman crying and telling me, I have nothing to eat, I'm starving. I've been starving for years. Wow. What happened to Vera's family? Who can she turn to at this point? So Vera never had her own children and her husband had already died. Uh, so she was pretty much left alone and... Um, she received some help from local volunteers and social workers and NGOs. 
also many many of the families and many of the people who live there um do you have relatives in the separatist regions so families and friends have been divided and some of them you know can cannot see each other especially right now because um the contact line is closed it's not possible to cross to the separatist regions um there used to be um a crossing point in uh in Stanitsa Luhansk uh but it was closed recently due to covid and so some of the people uh, are also very isolated because their family lives on the other side of the contact line so people who are living along the border are exposed to frequent shelling and might even be cut off from their families because the contact line basically runs through their community. Have a lot of people fled the region because of this conflict? So there has been a massive, massive displacement crisis um, following 2014 and 15 events where when a lot of people fled um, all across Ukraine. Um, I myself have I've done a reporting trip in um, in a border town called Ushgorod, which is very close to the border with my home country, Slovakia. And I've spoken to dozens, if not hundreds of, of internally displaced persons who fled more than 2,000 kilometers um, just to, to flee eastern Ukraine and who fled toward the west of the country. Um, right now, I would say the situation is slightly different because, as I mentioned, it's mostly the most vulnerable people or people who cannot or do not want to leave because this is another aspect of it, um, is that many of the elderly people don't necessarily want to leave um, I've interviewed a lady who lives directly on the contact line and it's, to me, was one of the worst places on earth that I've ever seen because she has trenches near her garden and there's, you know, signs warning against snipers and landmines everywhere. And she was telling me, I've lived in this house my entire life and I'm almost 90 and I don't want to leave. I simply don't want to leave. So right now the situation is slightly different because... Most of the populations who who now live on the contact line are people who do not want to leave or are unable to leave because they are in a particularly vulnerable condition. It doesn't seem like we have indication that this conflict will end anytime soon. How are people coping with it stretching into its eighth year? We should not forget that these are people who have already been heavily traumatized in 2014 and 2015. So many of these people are kind of reliving uh, the same trauma over again. And so we are really talking about a war zone and about a conflict that is affecting the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable people. This elderly couple... Um, their names were Alexandra and Ivan, and in Ukrainian we would say babushka and dedushka, which means grandmother and, and grandfather. And it was very, very touching for me because these people have a lot of resilience and sense of humor and they are very kind. This old lady, Alexandra, she was so happy to see, you know, to see me and to see another person because these populations and these people are very, very isolated as well. So oftentimes when you go, when you go to these villages as a journalist, people are very happy that they see someone new. And the old lady immediately told me to come and, and, and sit next to her. And she said, don't worry, I'm vaccinated. So you can come and approach me and, and sit next to me and take a picture. And when I sat next to her, she immediately hugged me and, 
you know, it was Christmas Day, so it was it was a particularly special moment, and it was so sad to leave this this place and this war zone as a journalist. You know, as this happens oftentimes that you leave a war zone and you are kind of worried for the local populations who have to to stay there. You can only hope that nothing worse will happen to them. After the break, the decades-old roots of this conflict and why it probably won't end anytime soon. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says, no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for the show comes from Shopify today. Shopify is, of course, the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. You know that friend of yours who's like on that next level yoga, who's like doing backflips? That's like Shopify when it comes to helping your business sell at every stage of growth. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you turn browsers into buyers and sell your products everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. And right now they're offering Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to give you a little boost and help you stress less and sell more. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash explained. Go to shopify.com slash explained now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash explained. Amy McKinnon, national security reporter with Foreign Policy Magazine, A lot of this conflict along Ukraine's eastern border can be traced back to eight years ago when Russia took over Crimea. But there's another historical marker to think about here, which is that this past Christmas marked 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. How is that playing into this conflict? So 30 years ago, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was the collapse of of an empire, but it was also the birth of over a dozen Countries, some of them for the first time, some of them had had previously been independent before. 
as the epicenter of the of what was the Soviet Union, Moscow has grappled with that ever since um, on many levels. What does it mean uh, culturally? What does it mean for their identity? But also in a large way, what does it mean for, for Russia's security? And a, a central source uh, for Russia's anxieties and a key sticking point in Russia's relationship with both Europe and, and the United States since the collapse of the Soviet Union has been the question of NATO expansion. NATO has expanded in several waves starting in 1999 to include former members of the Eastern Bloc as well as former states of the Soviet Union, the Baltic states. And this is something which, you know, Moscow has turned to again and again. As recently as late December in his annual press conference, Putin said that the West had lied, that they'd been betrayed. The strengthening of U.S. and NATO military groupings on Russia's border and the organization of large-scale military maneuvers are a serious cause for concern. That's certainly been a central point of, of Russian grievances and to a large degree also Russian propaganda um, justifying this, this current buildup and the saber-rattling that we're seeing. This buildup of Russian troops along the border, how different is it from what Ukraine saw in 2014? It is different in that they're incredibly surrounded now because of the positions that Russia has. You know, we've been getting maps uh, from the Ukrainian uh, defense ministry, from officials there that they're using to brief allies. And it, you know, looking at these maps, it really lays clear just how much a huge part of Ukraine is really encircled by either Russia itself or there's a huge border with Belarus, which is an incredibly close ally of Russia, which has deep, deep military ties with Russia, but also Crimea itself, which is now under Russian control and has a substantial Russian presence there as well to the south. So Russia has several pressure points. Uh, you know, if you look at it on a map, it's almost kind of a pincer, several pressure points from which it could uh, extract real pain um, on Ukraine if it wanted to. I mean, there's very deep and very real concern about Russia's intentions. I mean, during the Cold War, Russia proved more than willing to invade members of its own security bloc, members of the Warsaw Pact, Czechoslovakia and Hungary. And, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union has proven more than willing to invade its neighbours. This was the scene early on August the 8th, 2008, as Georgian rockets pounded the breakaway region of South Ossetia. It was the opening of a devastating five-day war between Russia and Georgia, with each side blaming the other for setting it off. It went to war with Georgia in 2008, 2014, annexed part of Ukraine, Crimea. It supported separatist rebels in eastern Ukraine. We are Orthodox Russians and we are Russian speakers living in Donbass, this commander says. We don't recognize the Ukrainian government. I'm defending my family, my world and my authenticity. The concerns around this buildup are, are built on a, a very real history about uh, the lengths that, that Russia is willing to go to influence the geopolitics of its neighboring states. Amy, there's been years of conflict here. Why does it seem like it's all coming to a head now? There's kind of many layers to it. The election of uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in 2019, I think, was a contributing factor to this. Volodymyr Zelensky arrived to his inauguration on foot. The crowds delighted with the man they've known for years as a comic touch on their TV screens. He stopped for selfies and high fives. 
You know, he campaigned, he was a political neophyte, he was a comedian. He campaigned on a platform of resolving the conflict in the Donbass and eastern Ukraine. I think the Kremlin saw somebody who they perceived to be weak and that they could manipulate and maybe push into making concessions which would be um, damaging to Ukraine's sovereignty and give give Russia more leverage. Um, but actually, Zelensky has proven to be a pretty shrewd politician. The military does everything possible to defend our country and to maintain the ceasefire. But when our soldiers are attacked and when there are casualties, it's clear to everyone that the army responds. Whilst there were some glimmers of hope in the very early days of restarting peace talks, I think the more that he dealt with the Russians and the more the Russians dug their heels in, he started to harden his attitudes um, and it became clear that he you know, he was not going to be a pushover on this issue. I think the Kremlin has increasingly realized that uh, the situation is not going in their favor, that you know, one of the ways to, to basically force it to a head to their favor may be using force. And then I think there's the broader international context as well. I think when, when the Kremlin looks to the West, looks to the Europe and the United States, um, it sees chaos, it sees division, you know, partly from the pandemic, but also from our own domestic political crises. He looks to Washington, which is, you know, very, very laser focused on the China challenge right now. And I think that I think that the Kremlin has just seen an opportunity at this moment in which I think it feels it may be able to force the West to the negotiating table and, and to get some get some key concessions on on European security. And is response from Western and NATO allies different this time around than when Russia first invaded the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014? I think the one advantage that the West has had this time around is they've had a a long uh, buildup. So if Russia does invade, um, there has been several months to to rally allies and partners in Europe and to try and build a response because a lot of countries were just com- caught completely off guard in 2014 when Russia seized the Crimean Peninsula. Events escalated really quite quickly. But but this time around, I mean, we had a little bit of a preview in the spring when the Russian military buildup started along the borders of Ukraine. There's always been a military base here, but it is massively expanded in the last few weeks. From the satellite imagery, there are more than 500 military vehicles currently based here. From us just driving past, it would appear that there are even more over 100,000 troops, and most of them stayed. Some were pulled back, but the vast majority stayed in the region. And then this buildup began again in the late fall. Um, and very early on, what was interesting was in the spring, of course, there were, you know, any kind of unexplained mobilization uh, like that causes alarm. But very quickly in the fall, people in the U.S., U.S. officials here in Washington started to use the word invasion. America's top diplomat sending a direct warning to Russia. If you invade Ukraine, there will be severe costs and consequences. That's what they were worried about, was they were worried about renewed invasion. And so clearly the U.S. is seeing some intelligence, which has it very, very spooked. Um, And they were very quick off the bat to start sharing that with Ukraine, first and foremost, but also with allies in NATO and in Europe to really get everybody on the same page about about what Russia's intentions may be and to start formulating that response. Does that mean Ukraine is better prepared to fight the Russian military today than it was in 2014? They've had more time 
uh, this time around, the army is better prepared. Um, they've had much more support in, in, in bolstering that that army. They've received uh, substantial defensive uh, weaponry from from the U.S., including uh, anti-tank javelin missiles, um, which was something the Trump administration provided. That had been seen as a, a red line in the Obama era of fears that it would it would provoke Russia, but. They've been given substantive support. Morale is, of course, very high. You know, this is an existential crisis for the Ukrainians. I mean, they know, you know, someone said to me a few weeks ago, the Ukrainians know why they're, you know, they're defending their country. They know why they're fighting this war. You know, can the same be said for Russian soldiers, which are, which may be sent across the border? That's, you know, not clear. That said, earlier we heard from a reporter who said that people who are living in these border regions are really starting to lose hope after about eight years of conflict they're not particularly hopeful that they're going to see an end to this anytime soon. I think nobody sees an easy roadmap out of the out of the current buildup and out of the current crisis. Ultimately, if you know U.S. and European officials are saying they still don't think Putin has made up his mind on what he wants to do, but the sad reality I think for Ukraine is that ultimately Ukraine's security, its geopolitical direction, whether it moves closer to the West or remains in Russia's orbit, those questions mean far more to Moscow than they do to Washington. Um, and if if Putin decides that he wants to invade, um, there's not a lot. You know, the, the Ukrainian military is far is much stronger, much more formidable than it was, but you know, they're still greatly um outmatched by the size of the Russian forces. And how likely is Russia to actually go there, to invade the entire country with its full force? I would not put money on that. I get asked that a lot. It's the, obviously the, the big question on everybody's mind. And I just don't know. And that even even that, you know, scares me. In the spring during the buildup, I felt like, okay, this is clearly funky. Something's going on. But I didn't feel like it was headed for an invasion. But this time around, just seeing the sheer alarm from U.S. officials, um, whatever they're seeing is clearly alarming them. And by extension, that's uh, that's definitely alarming me. I think a lot will become clearer next week uh, where there's a series of talks between U.S. and Russian officials in Geneva on January 10th and then at NATO and at the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And it I think it will be interesting to see there whether or not they make any progress because Russia has made these demands for security guarantees, but there's kind of two baskets within those demands. They've the first set of demands really centers on NATO, that there be no further NATO expansion, that NATO not put troops and material in countries that joined after 1997. And I think that's going to be a non-starter. You know, both uh, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg's many member states have have said Ukraine has its own right to determine its own security organization and, you know, what alliances it wants to join. NATO's relationship with Ukraine is going to be decided by uh, the 30 NATO allies and Ukraine, no one else. But the second basket of issues is about broader issues of European security. That's arms control, that's the balances of forces in Europe, that's something which it may also be in the U.S. interest to have conversations with Russia about and to see if there's a way to kind of alter those balances which could make both sides feel safer. Could things escalate to the point that Western leaders intervene beyond sanctioning Russia and having tense exchanges with Putin? No. Uh, the U.S. has been pretty clear. President Biden has been very clear that send troops uh, or U.S. forces to, to support the Ukrainians in this. And I... 
I think other European leaders have been pretty clear that that's also not on the table. Ukraine means more to Putin than it does to than it does to the West. He's willing to send troops to to fight and die to keep Ukraine within its orbit, but that's just not something which is which is on the agenda. I think for for Europe and the West. Amy McKinnon is a national security reporter for Foreign Policy magazine who has reported from across Eastern Europe. Sarah Sinkirova, who we heard from earlier, is a freelance human rights journalist. Today's show was produced by Victoria Chamberlain. I'm Halima Shah, and Sean Ramaswaram will be back with us next week. It's Today Explained. <laughs>